Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. This year, 2017, marks the 45th anniversary of the passage of the legislation that's commonly referred to as Title IX, uh, legislation that quite literally changed the landscape for college athletics. And we're delighted to have with us to talk about some of that Amy Wilson, who is the NCAA's Director of Inclusion and has been involved in many years as, as both a student and a teacher of Title IX and the impact that it's had on athletes, a student athlete herself, a multi-sport student athlete uh, in the Hall of Fame in Illinois College. Uh, Amy, welcome to you. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, let's start off our conversation by me asking you to, to give our listeners a bit of an overview about Title IX. I think a lot of people have heard the term, but not that many understand what it really says. So let, let's start off with that, if we could. Sure. Well, it was a federal law passed in 1972, and the original language of the law was only 37 words. Mm-hmm. It said nothing about sports or athletics, and the law simply said you cannot discriminate at educational institutions that receive, based on sex, at educational institutions that receive federal financial funding. And so if any institution um, of higher learning um, has students that are getting student loans from the federal government, that's one way you're automatically, you know, have to follow Title IX. And what many don't know is that it was really a law about access to education, that there were women who could not get jobs on faculties, could not get spots in graduate school or even undergraduate classrooms. And really, it was a law that said, let's open those doors for opportunity for that education. It wasn't until about a year after the law was passed that there was a realization that, hey, maybe this applies to athletics. So for the first 35 to 40 years of its existence, it really has been a law about athletics, or at least that's been where the conversation has centered. And then Title IX actually covers 10 areas, and one that's gained a lot of attention in recent years is sexual violence on college campuses, because certainly sexual harassment is an area under Title IX. So um, it's had a really interesting history with different areas of it being emphasized over time. And as you said, a a sort of mythology has grown up around it, people saying, oh, it, it must have been legislation that said women playing sports. Right. But as you mentioned, that I don't want to call it an afterthought. That's not that's not an accurate. Mm-hmm. But it's not what the what the springboard was for this legislation initially. Is it is it fair to understanding that? Is it fair to say and I said this in the introduction, so I hope you're going to agree with me. It mm-hmm. is fair to say that it was one of the earth-shattering pieces of legislation when you talk about our our, our culture today in terms of what it's done for female athletes. Is that overstating it? I don't believe you've overstated that at all. When you look at the participation numbers and the way they increased just in the first decade of Title IX, a 1000% increase in high school participation college participation skyrocketed just in the first 10 years. So um, I think there are other cultural factors that have contributed to girls, you know, women gaining access to sport, but nothing more important than Title IX to really open those doors. And athletics has been so important, but just the education that girls and women have received because of the law has been incredible for shaping and transforming our entire society. I want to get to a couple of things for you in a minute. I want to talk about where we are now, mm-hmm. um, where we've come from the past in terms of participation, in terms of diversity, in, in terms of, of um, leadership roles. But let's start back then, all right? Mm-hmm. Again, to give people a, a, a better view of all this. I'm older than you. I remember, you know, when this is passed, and I'm in college when this is passed. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a younger sister who was a a marvelous athlete. 
She had no teams to play on. Mm -hmm. There was nothing, literally nothing for her to compete. We had a fairly enlightened track coach. I'm at a little tiny Point Pleasant Beach High School in, in the Jersey Shore, 100 kids in my senior class, public school. We had a very enlightened track coach um, who let her run. And there were some other teams that would say, well, she can't run. She's a girl. You know. But we had a coach who would let her run. She never – and she did really well, but she didn't score in, in any of these because she wasn't considered a part of the team. Uh, what did – what was there in 1972? What were the opportunities that existed pre-Title IX for female athletes? Sure. Where, well, there certainly were pockets across the country um, where either high school or college sports – we're doing well, but it might be a certain city in a state or a certain region of the country in a particular sport. But in general, if you look across the country, on average, um, at colleges and universities when Title IX was passed, women were receiving 0 to 2% of the overall athletics budget. So if they were being funded at all, you know, it was rare. And you had professors who were teaching in physical education departments driving their station wagons and bologna sandwiches out of the back seat and sleeping on gym floors. I mean, these um, women leaders and students did about anything they could to have that opportunity to participate. So what Title IX did was to say, um, you matter. We're going to start to count you, and we're going to start to provide resources and opportunities for you. So you really can't um, you know, overstate the impact that law had to open those doors. You and I were chatting before uh, we, we started this, and, and I mentioned to you that I'm, I'm playing football at Yale in the late 60s, early mm-hmm. 70s. Uh, I am there when the, when the first cohort of, of women arrive. Uh, many of the schools in that area were starting um, to, to become co-educational. So in 1969, we have 250 transfer women come to Yale. 1970, first group of, a full group of, of freshmen. Uh, and you had women who wanted to participate in sports. And I, you know, many of them are friends of mine. And, and we look back and we talk about it. And, and they just recently were telling me some stories about they would literally change in their car or in cars alongside of the field or, or in closets that were somehow in the field house because they had no place to change. Half of them didn't have uniforms yet. And yet they were representing Yale University. Mm-hmm. And you think, really? <laughs> was, 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 was that the scenario? Why were... Were the institutions just not prepared for for the creation, the influx of women in our case, and then the creation of these women's teams at the time? I, I think that's part of it. And anytime you ask an entity to share power and resources with a group they haven't previously had to, mm-hmm. there's resistance. So to say that there was a backlash against Title IX, um, even the NCA, here we are talking today mm-hmm. at, at the headquarters, um, wasn't so sure about Title IX and, in fact, filed a lawsuit to say, should this really apply to athletics and and how should this work and we're going to hire some lobbyists to, you know. So there was a really a societal backlash against this idea of women kind of entering this domain that had always been for men. I mean, men had been playing sports at the college level for well over 100 years at that point, um, starting in the 1870s, 1880s. And the idea of girls and women um, entering that domain was not welcomed by all. Some predicted mm-hmm it would be the end of men's athletics at the college level, that sharing funding and resources would mean that it would be no good for anybody. And thankfully, the participation numbers and lots of other statistics show us that both sports for men and women have thrived since Title IX, which is a a great fact to know. It it hasn't hurt men. In fact, I think it's been good for society in general to have both women and men competing in athletic departments and learning that mutual respect for each other as competitors and leaders and all of those 
really important and tangible qualities that we believe young people get from sport and enhance the overall educational experience. When you, today, 45th anniversary mm-hmm. now, look back at your own college experiences, mm-hmm. right? You're playing two varsity sports at, at Illinois College. Did you have a sense back then that there was an, an equity, if you will, to to your teams and the the female athletes there? Or even then, was it still not as uh, not as evolved as it's become? It's a really great question. I was born the year before Title IX, so I had the benefit of, of growing up um, and never having someone tell me, no, you can't play. If there was a sport that I wanted to try, I pretty much had access to that. So I never thought about, do I get to play or not? Um, what I wish I would have been more enlightened on was the quality of the experience, because my inequities that I experienced in the mid-'80s into the early-'90s when I competed weren't about the chance to get on the court or the field. They were more about the quality of experience. How because do you mean? we were still at a place, we still are today, and it's getting better, where we aren't providing similar resources. So whether it be the quality of the field or the type of uniform or the type of international travel, or I look back now and see inequities, but I didn't realize at the time to think about that or to ask about it. I think I was caught up in that's my experience. And so one of the things that's important to me as I travel around the country and visit conference offices or institutions and talk about Title IX and gender equity is that our younger generations know the story of your sister or my mother who thinks she was the fastest girl in her class but never got a chance to really prove it where anybody actually had a stopwatch or a time because girls and women just didn't have those opportunities. I think the experiences mean so much more to girls and women when they know that history and the struggle of what women like at Yale and other universities stood up and said, we have a right to play, and there's a federal law that says we do. We had a famous event at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, you're nodding. You know what it mm-hmm. is. Go ahead. You tell the story. Yeah. I, I believe you're referring to the one um, where the um, athletes the were tired team. of, of right. changing yeah. uh, and, and y- getting crew. on a bus very cold and wet while the men got hot showers, and mm-hmm. they made quite a statement in they the athletic did. department's they, they, office. They essentially yes. <laughs> stripped down into yes. their gear yeah. out in public saying, we have no place to do it, so right. you know what? We're going to do it right here. And it, it, it generated what they wanted, which was people saying, really? You, you have no, you're representing Yale University and you have no place mm-hmm. to change? And, and these were accomplished athletes, by the way. Um, and it's, it's, it, it, it continues to reverberate. I, my daughter was a, a lacrosse player at Yale. She's now a, a surgeon. And she heard that story mm-hmm. when she got there. Now, by the time she got to Yale, it, you know, the, the, it, things were fairly well-balanced. Um, but it's, I think, as you said, to get the younger girls and women who are athletes now to make them have an institutional history, mm-hmm. to understand what the struggles were. I, I interviewed Billie Jean King recently, and we were talking about the changes in her game in, in tennis over the years. And she was extolling the virtues, of course, of Title IX and, and the impact it's had on people. Uh, and she was commenting that she's struck by the fact that so many um, girls and women who are athletes now don't know. They, they don't know what the struggles were, um, and as a consequence, if you don't know, you don't, don't appreciate as much. Do you, do you find that also in your travels? I do, and then I find when I, I talk to young women of, of the generations below mine and they hear the story, they're fascinated by it, and they often embrace it and want to know more. So I think one of our tasks is to find out how do we connect with girls and women at all ages to make sure they, they do know that story. And often it resonates with people 
when I talk with them and they'll have a story like you did mm-hmm. um, about your sister with no track team, but a coach who gave her a chance to run, but her score didn't count. Or they'll, they'll have some story from their family history where, where the, it comes to life for them that, yeah, somebody that I care about or cared about didn't have that opportunity either. And it starts to mean more, I think, when we humanize it mm-hmm. and when we think about the people we care about having opportunities or right. lack thereof. Well, I think any good storytelling, you have concepts and, and themes, but when all of a sudden you put a face to it, um, it, it makes it more powerful when you try to hear those stories. Let's. Uh, we talked about some of the myths that mm-hmm. surround Title IX. Right. The, the first one that you dispelled for us, saying, what is the, what's the language? Mm-hmm. You know, I said, how few words in this. Um, I'm sure that, and I've heard this from people, they believe that title, what Title IX, this is their belief, what Title IX says is if a, an institution wants to start a men's lacrosse team, they cannot do that unless they start a women's lacrosse team also. Right. Is that true? It is not true. Um, the way that, that Title IX basically covers three key areas, it looks at the financial aid or scholarships we provide. It looks at accommodating interests and abilities or participation. And then third, it looks at the treatment and benefits that student-athletes receive. So in that second area, your question pertains to participation. And the way Title IX works is it really looks at the entire men's program compared to the entire women's program. And there's nothing where it says if you have one team, you have to have another. In fact, schools have complete autonomy to decide what they would like their sport programs to be. So and, that, then, and that's good. I, don't, yes, I want to interrupt sure. you because I think that's uh-huh. an interesting point. Mm-hmm. The federal government does not tell colleges or universities, what sports they have to no, have. No, they do get to decide that, absolutely. And and then as they comply with the law, they actually have three choices on how they can show we are accommodating the interest abilities on our campuses. And through time, those three different choices have, have um, come to be known as the three prongs of Title mm-hmm. IX. And so a lot of, there's a lot of... Uh, mis- and they are... You, you sure, go I'd be glad to, to tell and, you about those. I can, I can kind of quickly give a, a yeah. summary for you. Um, the first one is, is, is more of a, a numbers-based um, way to meet, to be in compliance. And basically what it says is you look, if you, at your institution, 54% of all your students are women. So across your campus, then around 54% of your student-athletes would be women. So that's prong one. Um, that's often difficult to meet because there isn't a women's sport on most campuses that meets the number of, of football teams. Right. You've got, so you got a roster. You're, current, you you're carrying yeah. 100 guys. There is no right. commensurate women's so sport. So since Title IX, as higher education has evolved and there are no more women on many campuses, that one's a little more difficult. But there mm-hmm. are some schools that do meet that. Prong 2 says um, that you have a both a history and a plan for continuing to offer opportunities for the underrepresented sex. So to give an example, my mentor and national leading expert on Title IX, Dr. Christine Grant, who was the former athletics director at the University of Iowa, during her time from the early 70s to the early 2000s, she met prong two by having a plan. Every four or five years, she added a sport for the underrepresented sex, which were women. So it gives you time to build those numbers. So you don't have to do it immediately. No. Again, but as you, long but you, as there's right. a good faith effort, as you right. said, there's a plan in place right. uh, and, a, and, and a legitimate plan in place. Right. For, for the past and showing you're moving right. forward. And then prong three, um, schools do have the right to say we've done a thorough investigation and study of our current students and from the areas where we recruit, and we can say we're meeting the needs of our students on campus. So essentially they're saying and the underrepresented th- there's sex. no groundswell for us right. here in this institution to create a, 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 a women's lacrosse team, Exactly, let's say. and the Office for Civil Rights and the Department of Education that enforces Title IX 
would ask you to document that. Mm -hmm. You've done very careful research that you're serving, not just current students, because you and I know if you want to be a lacrosse player, you don't go to a school that doesn't have lacrosse, but that you're doing a thorough study of the high school sports that are growing, club sports, AAU. um, Also, what are the sports on the emerging sport list for women that the NCA has and trying to grow women's sports? And if you're paying attention to all of that and can document where you're at, that is a way to meet the t- to, to meet Title IX compliance. So I often say when I meet people, well, what prong is your institution using? And it's always interesting to see if they so, can answer so that question code, or not. So it's your code. Yeah, for the participation part of right. Title IX. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've been actively involved in, in monitoring what, how mm-hmm. things happen. You were um, an author of a, a report that looks at the 45th anniversary. Mm-hmm. You were involved in a report at the 40th anniversary here. Let me ask you about about what you found in terms of where we are now. And let's let's start, let me break it into some categories. Let's start with the the notion of participation. Sure. Um, Give me a a snapshot, if you will, of where we are now in terms of of women's participation in in collegiate athletics. So so the good news is that since Title IX, opportunities for men and women in college athletics have continued to grow. And in fact, in NCA championship sport participation, we break records every year for both men and women. So that's the exciting part of the story to tell. What I would see that I've noticed in the reports I've done um, five years ago and then this year is that as we've gotten into the 2000s, there's been a bit of stagnation in the growth of women's opportunities. And in fact, we've seen just slightly men's opportunities start to grow a little faster than women's. Why do you think that is? You know, it's, it's when you say opportunities, yeah. we're, we're talking about opportunities we're talking to participate. To, to, par- now. to participate, right. and, and I think, think I think there could be lots of reasons for it. I think that um, you know it's difficult for colleges and universities to start new teams right now, partly because of the financial status. And I think the economy in two thousand eight and what has happened. Um, there's a lot of higher ed educate higher ed issues with funding. Um, particularly at public schools. Um, private schools are sometimes challenged by enrollment. So the overall financial situation of a college or university can certainly impact the, the growth of, of sports for, for both men and women. Um, it, it's interesting to, to think about what sorts of factors could, could affect there. But what we want to try to make sure is that we continue to see growth for both men and women and so that not we don't one stall the, out. not one at the expense Absolutely. of another. And I think yeah. that's important. I think a lot it of is. people, there's a perception out there amongst a lot of people. And again, I'm the mm-hmm. father of two Division One athletes. Both my son played lacrosse mm-hmm. at Yale and my daughter played lacrosse at Yale. So you look at it you know, in terms of the, the perspectives of, of female participants and male participants. But I do know that there is a perception out there that the growth of participation on the part of women has been at the expense of opportunities for men. Is that accurate? You know, I, it is not. And I think just looking at one graph in the report that shows the increase in participation really helps um, to to, uh, debunk that myth. I would also say that um, Title IX explicitly says it's a disfavored practice. I'm talking about Office for Civil Rights Mm -hmm. to, to cut a men's team or to take away an opportunity to add to an opportunity. And when a school comes out, I think and says, it's important to know that. It I think is. People it thought is. that if you're going to add a women's team, you've got to axe. No, a men's you do not. Team. And and in fact, it's a disfavored practice. And to say we can't stop you from doing it because you have autonomy to make your decisions, but we would prefer you don't. And certainly, as a Title IX advocate and a proponent for women's sports, I care very much about men's sports, and we want to see both succeed. And so it's it's heartbreaking to know when institutions are in financial trouble. And then they come out and say, we've got to cut these two men's swords, and it's because of Title IX. I always ask a couple of questions. Um, How much money are you spending on just a couple of your sports? And oftentimes institutions prioritize sports like basketball or football. Look at your overall budget. Is this the only way, the only decision you can make? Um, 
I also um, asked to look at kind of strategic planning. Have you been paying attention to this over time? And there's lots of factors that come into this. But if you look at added and drop teams for men and women, the only division that has shown um, men's teams, like a net loss for men's teams is Division One, which I find interesting. I, I think that it's yeah. almost counterintuitive because people think Division One, all the money. Where right? the money That's is. where the money right. is, the big time, right. you know, the television contracts. And I, I suspect if you ask somebody who knows a little bit about the, the intercollegiate mm-hmm. athletics world, they'd say, well, my guess is probably Division Three would be cutting because right. there's smaller, smaller budgets right. and Division One has all the money. Why, why do you think then we're seeing that sort of counterintuitive result mm-hmm. of Division One? actually lose well in teams. the title nine at 45 report right after I show a graph about added and dropped teams in the net over mm-hmm. about a 20 year period or 30 year period I then show what schools are spending on average on football and basketball as compared to the rest of their men's sports and that's pretty interesting mm-hmm. because when you look at um, division one you're looking at over three quarters of the budget for two sports. And so I think you have to kind of stand back philosophically and say, what kind of program do we want to have? A broader one that provides opportunities for all students? Or, you know, and and obviously um, it costs more money to put on an FBS football game on a Saturday than about any event you could ever imagine in college athletics. So I understand the much higher expenditure. And I also understand that those are sports that make money for institutions. And so then I always come back to, um, you know, this is an educational enterprise. It is a, an extracurricular activity that's part of the college experience. And so, and it's a significant part of the fabric right. of the college and, experience. And thank goodness those sports do make the money that right. they do because it not only funds the other men's sports, but the women's sports as well. Right. So nobody's more appreciative to, to right. me than that, that our culture has this fascination and love for sport that, that brings in this kind of revenue that allows us to have great experiences across the board. So I know there are schools that have to make very tough decisions about that, but what we hope is that um, it's never taking opportunities away. When we look at participation across the, the, the three divisions, one, two, and mm-hmm. three, women's, the, the, the percentage number, um, what are we seeing? So if you look at, at all NCA together, uh, you know, in one big lump, all three divisions, about 56.5% of the participants are male and 435 are female. And when you look at that, you have to consider that about 54% of the students on those campuses are female. So there's a gap there. Um, and when you break it down by division, the smallest gap is at Division One, And at Division One, you have that about surprise a, you? Did yeah. that surprise you to find um, that? Not necessarily. I, I think that um, as we, we go down to other schools, Division two and three, that might be more enrollment driven. Um, I sometimes see where those mm-hmm. those numbers could be. But but they're what, 53, uh, 46 for Division one, 58 percent, 41 percent at Division two and then about the same for Division three. There's about a 17 percent gap between men and women at Division two and three. So I think that's something to to pay attention to. And mm-hmm. so part of my job overseeing kind of the area of gender equity, women, Title IX for the NCA is how do we continue to grow those opportunities? Right. You know, how do we continue to, and, and one of the ways we do it is we identify sports that we think can make their way to be championship sports and encourage schools to consider starting those sports. Let me shift our focus a little bit mm-hmm. and, and um, talk about the, the, how things have progressed in terms of uh, women in leadership roles in, in intercollegiate athletics. Because, again, my suspicion is if you grab somebody off the street who knows a little bit about college athletics, knows a little bit about Title IX, and you said to them, so where do you think we are right now in participation? I think they'd probably come in you know, pretty close to what the numbers are. 
But if you ask them, where do you think we are in terms of le- women in leadership roles? By leadership roles, I mean head coaches, uh, athletic directors, and commissioners. Let's add commissioners. Absolutely. Too, right? But let's focus first on head coaches. Right? Where are we now in terms of women leadership roles, percentage of head coaches. Absolutely. So when Title IX was passed, about 90-plus percent of the coaches for women's teams were women. Mm-hmm. Often they weren't paid. It was part of their professor job. But as athletics for women developed, we saw an influx of men coaching women. And there are amazing male coaches leading women's teams across the country. I think it's great that men and women are coaching both genders. But what I will say is that where we're at now is that 60% of women's teams are coached by men. So it's 60-40. So we have more men coaching women's teams than we do women. And so some might then say, well, I'm sure there's you know, a lot more assistant female coaches that are you know, ready to come in and those numbers will change. And just in the past few years of monitoring the data, now 51% of assistant coaches for female teams are men. So we've actually seen that number um, you know, overlap the women as well. So... Um, Clearly, there's, you know, my office, leadership development here at the NCA. There are national organizations like the Alliance for Women Coaches and certainly um, other organizations across the country that are working on how do we, you know, get young women to think about this profession? How do we get them to persist in it and be successful? How do we support them? Um, Because we certainly, we want both role models for our athletes. And we don't want to see a a time where um, we just have hardly any women coaches for women athletes. We had this conversation in one of our earlier podcasts about this uh, I don't want to call it a dearth. That's probably too strong a word, mm-hmm. but but certainly a shift in the percentages away from what you would have anticipated. With the growth of of, of of girls and women participating in sports, you would think you would have a commensurate growth of women in head coaching positions. Uh, and I asked the question then, and let me ask you the, 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 the same question now. Why do you think we're seeing that? Well, that's the million-dollar question because I tell you, if we if we knew the exact reason, I think we could really focus and target it. I'll say one maybe positive side to this is that what Title IX did with opening access to education was open access to a plethora of careers for women. And so one could argue that women have many more opportunities to choose from. And before Title IX, you'll hear many Title IX pioneers or women from the pre-Title IX era talk about, you know, I could be a secretary, I could be a teacher, I could be a nurse. You know, they, they were, you know, sort of pushed towards certain occupations. And those teachers were the ones who often ended up being coaches. That aside, um, I think we're still uh, working within a very patriarchal environment that's male-dominated in a lot of athletics departments that may not be always welcoming to females. I think there are issues with work-life, uh, work-life integration. How do you do this profession that has kind of odd hours and you know all kinds of issues that is still problematic for women? I, you know, I think there's homophobia. I, th- I think there are a number of issues. And it, when you talk to women, you, you see that they'll, they'll hit on a long list and you'll hear those repeated. Um, we are currently, um, the NCA is working with the um, University of Minnesota's Tucker Center for research on girls and women in sport to look at some athletics departments that have been very successful and not only hiring women but retaining them and having successful women coaches. And we're trying to determine what, what are you doing in these athletic departments that is allowing for a higher number and they're staying and they're being successful. Maybe there's something there that we can share with other athletics departments to try to encourage this sort of success at others. So it's a complicated question and there are many working on it. But um, unfortunately, I think there's just so many factors, it's hard to, to nail down that one that is the difference maker. 
Last question for you. As somebody who who has lived through, a, a, mm-hmm. as you said, you were born, you know, right around the time that this happened. So by the time you reached your level as a, a student athlete, a collegiate student athlete, things had already begun to invo- evolve. But you're you're a student of this. You've looked back on it. You've looked at at, at trends and progressions mm-hmm. here. Uh, where do you think, let's say, if you and I were having this conversation 10 years from now, mm-hmm. celebrating the 55th anniversary of Title IX, where do you think we're going to be? Well, I'm optimistic because I feel like the NCAA and a number of other organizations across the country and our member institutions, especially through the presidential pledge that we've asked institutions to sign to commit to hiring women and persons of color, I think from the leadership perspective, we're moving in a more intentional way than we ever have to highlight that and to ask colleges and universities to do better on the leadership side. So I'm hoping that instead of saying to you in 10 years that 23% of all head coaches, ADs, and conference commissioners are women, I hope we can sit here and say that's 33%. I mean, I hope we can tell a story that, that we're continuing to grow those numbers. Uh, in terms of participation, I would say that I hope I can say, you know, I noticed that trend in the 2000s that, that women's rates had slowed down, that we're kind of back to that pace where men and women are growing together in a, you know, in, in a really meaningful way, and that some of the sports in our emerging sport list, which include rugby, triathlon, equestrian, I'd love to report to you in 10 years that we have some new NCAA championships and opportunities for those women to experience the amazing uh, you know, championships that my colleagues just down the hallway put on. So those are things I'm, I'm hopeful for. And I think I would say, too, in terms of the resources, Title IX doesn't require you spend the same amount of money on anything. It's about the quality of the experience for the student-athlete. And so I would hope that as we talk to male and female student-athletes across the country, they would feel pretty good about switching places with each other and saying, wow, we've got a great collegiate athletic experience that is helping us to one day be better citizens of the world. And, you know, because we, we do this not to produce professional athletes. We do this because we believe it is integral to the overall educational experience. So I'm hopeful that we're going to have a good story to tell with the numbers and also with just that overall student-athlete experience. That what That's what drives me to do this work. How do we create more opportunity and better opportunities for those student-athletes and then those who teach and lead them? And I think we're headed in a positive direction. Well, it's been a fascinating evolution mm-hmm. over the 45 years that we're celebrating the passage of Title IX. Uh, Amy Wilson, the Director of Inclusion for NCAA. Amy, thanks so much for spending some time with us. We great, appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank All you, right. Jack. You be well. And that does it for today for the College Sports Insider. I'm Jack Ford, and we will see you again real soon. 